let's get going. Let's just pray real quick, and then we'll move right into the message. So Jesus, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for every single person that's in the room tonight, God, that you've drawn us here. That's for a reason. And we ask, God, that the divine presence of your spirit will increase in this place. God, we're still worshiping you, and we're fixing our hearts on you. We ask, God, that it will be not just a gospel of words, but a gospel of power, so our faith won't rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So we invite your love, we yield to your love, and we ask that you speak to us in the kind name of Jesus. Amen. How we doing? Me too. So uh, we're in a bit of like transition season as a church. I think a lot of times the stuff on the outside will kind of mirror what's happening in the spiritual, physical realm, and spiritual realm. And I just felt like a lot of shifting inside of me. And so, and just discerning, okay, Lord, where are we going? The seasons are changing uh, outside. Uh, we're, you know, in just church planning in general, there's like always like a million. I feel like I'm learning to juggle really well, all types of things that I never knew how to do before. Um, but uh, I've been in, in the midst of the season, so I'm going to try to kind of articulate where I feel like the Lord's taking us the next few months, and, uh, and yeah, we'll go from there. So uh, again, anybody that's new, we're happy we're here. Uh, we're River House, really just a little grassroots movement uh, about prayer, family, and mission. And so tonight, uh, I'm actually going to talk about mission, and I'm going to start with a quote um, that I think is... Uh, Profound. It's by a man named uh, Roland Baker, if you're familiar with who he is. And he says this. He's a theologian and a missionary, brilliant theological mind. He says, It should not require great prophetic powers to perceive that in this life Christianity is missions. As long as others have less than we do, the love of God compels us to share what we have. As long as we possess the presence and power of God that others do not, we have a mission to accomplish. Jesus came not to judge the world, but to save it. And if we want fellowship with him, we must partake of his nature and have his purpose in common. If what we have is of value, we cannot keep it to ourselves. We should not have to argue the primacy of missions before the church. If we knew anything of the love of God, we know that the good news applies to everyone on the planet, even in the furthest corners. If all people everywhere need what we possess, missions is logical, natural, and morally obligatory for us who believe. Amen? I like it so simple that if we have something that's of value, we can't keep it to ourselves. And uh, that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight. Um, we have, anybody is familiar with the phrase, like, I had a paradigm shift? Yeah? Raise your hands. Make sure you're awake. All right. Cool. Yeah, so we, we use this term a lot. Uh, we talk about paradigm shifts and the word paradigms. Um, and really, paradigms are like these deeply entrenched patterns of thinking, essentially. It's kind of like if you think how water always finds itself into the channels, that's how paradigms work. And they're actually grids that we use to interpret our world, interpret circumstances. Um, and it's kind of like circumstances, they flow into that low place, like that current, that paradigm that we have. And we use these. Uh, they're the stories that we tell. They're the way that we interpret our life and the way that we interpret God and the way we interpret our world. They're the way we interpret his voice. And uh, I believe that God, oftentimes, the paradigms we have aren't working. 
right? And you see um, all throughout, the reason we have paradigm shifts is because like, whoa, something opened up in my thinking that I didn't have before, right? Anybody had this? I've had this plenty of times. And I think uh, paradigm shifts, uh, they, they're, they're painful, first of all, because we don't like to change. Uh, change is a difficult process. It can be kind of a tearing process at times. Um, but they're important that we embrace as Christians, like this continual process of having our paradigm shifted because it's in the scripture. Uh, repentance, metanoia is the Greek word. It literally means to change the way you think. Romans 12 says, uh, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it, Paul's actually talking about paradigm shifts. He's saying you need to have this process, this continual process of paradigm shifts, of repentance. Uh, and that's actually how you become transformed. Are you following me? All right, good. One person over here is following me. What about you guys? Yes, okay. Praise the Lord. It's a good night. Uh, so it's very important. And uh, it's also painful. And the way that oftentimes paradigms are shifted is through what we would call disturbance, right? Resonance, anybody familiar with resonance? That's like when things, well, that resonates with me, right? It feels good. Disturbance is like, ooh, right? This is making me uncomfortable, right? And, and again, all throughout scripture, you see that disturbances are then what push people into these paradigm shifts. They're what kind of, if you think of a paradigm as if it was a channel, a disturbance sometimes is like an, you know, a different channel that's just kind of like, ooh, like something's carving into me, right? It's like pushing. It's like this is uncomfortable. Um, but the Lord uses disturbance to, to write new paradigms, to create new paradigms, new ways of thinking, uh, new ways of repenting. And just a couple examples, just so that you know I'm not making stuff up. Um, uh, Peter in Acts with Cornelius, he has this paradigm shift where uh, he's like on the rooftop. Anybody familiar with this? The sheet comes down and it's all these animals that Jews are not allowed to eat. And he hears the words say, kill and eat. And he's like, God, I've never eaten any of these animals before. Like he's, he's interpreting this experience through his paradigm. And God's disturbing this paradigm, right? And he's like, again, it happens, kill and eat. Again, it happens, kill and eat. And he's going... What in the world does this mean? Like, he's being disturbed, and then at that point, someone comes. He's staying at the tanner's house, says this man Cornelius had a vision. He ends up going to this man Cornelius, who is a Gentile, which most of us in the room, I'm going to take a guess, say that we are Gentiles as well, so this is important for us. This paradigm shift was real important for us. And he gets to the house. Jews weren't allowed to go into Gentile houses. So Peter's never been into a Gentile house. And he's saying, but this guy had a vision at the right hour. He sent him to this house. He knew you'd be there. And Peter's going, I'm disturbed right now, but I don't know. God's doing something, right? And he walks in. The Holy Spirit falls on all these Gentiles. And all of a sudden, Peter has this paradigm shift. And he says, now I see God's not a respecter of persons, right? And it's not that there wasn't biblical precedence for this. All throughout the Old Testament, there's like these verses that he'll be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. And it's like all of a sudden the paradigm shifts, his mind opens, and he begin, you can perceive the Bible differently. Are you following me? Right? These are paradigm shifts. Uh, another one would be John Wesley. I like to use modern examples. If any of you are familiar with him, he's the leader. He like, uh, started the Methodist movement, any, like Nazarene movement, anything Wesleyan holiness. That's him. Uh, he was like saved and like not like a lukewarm Christian by any means. He was literally traveling to America from England to preach early in his ministry. 
Uh, this is before he had founded uh, Methodism. He was in, in the Anglican church at this time. And a storm hit the boat, and he was in the boat with some Moravians, uh, which were part of this, like, like 24-7, 100-year house of prayer thing. It was like, you know, IHOP today. IHOP's not the first one. They copied the Moravians. They were doing it for like a 100-year prayer meeting, right? And the Spirit bird this move, and he's in this boat with these Moravian missionaries. And during this storm, he's freaking out for his life, terrified. And they're like at peace, and they're worshiping God and praying. He said in that moment, he knew, whatever they have, I don't. And he says later, he then went to America, failed miserably, goes back to England in a very down place, and he realizes, I don't even know that I'm saved. And he actually says, I don't even know that I was saved. So he talks about himself later. That's not an easy confession to make for someone that was, like, at least devout enough to get on a ship and go to America to preach the gospel. Are you following me? It wasn't like he was, like, lukewarm. I'm, like, a Christian. Like, he's like that's big-time stuff. And yet he was so disturbed by this experience that he began hungering for more, and then he ended up having this experience from the disturbance where he says, I had this strange warm feeling come over me, and he gets filled with the Holy Spirit and births this movement that's still bearing fruit in the earth today, right? So there's this process of disturbance that is meant to shift our paradigms, bring metanoia, bring repentance, and it changes us, right? It postures us, it opens our minds to see things, to hear things, to process our world differently. Does this make sense? Okay. Um, so I, I'm in the midst of, like, this disturbance myself, and I... And I I feel like tonight what the Lord wanted me to do is, like, give you the gift of my disturbance so that you'll all be disturbed. So that's a really, like, nice way of saying I want to disturb you right now. Um, and it's not out of anything um, bad. It's, uh, it's good. Um, but I, I've been in this process um, for years now, and I feel like this is something that it's just, it's just like, beginning to burden me. And, and that's really in, in this missions thing. And and love, and so I'm just kind of going to bring you into my own internal reality, and and hope to to cast that. Uh, the Lord spoke to me about in the last month or two, ish. I can't remember exactly, uh, but He spoke to me because I was pondering some things, and He said, "Jordan, so when you were young, said you loved without restraint, and you know how like everybody when you get like your first girlfriend or first boyfriend, it's just like, here I am." Right? You're the one I love you with everything I have, right? Like everyone says, first love, be careful. You're going to get your heart hurt, right? And I'm like a passionate person on anything. And, uh, and I remember when I was about 17, um, maybe a little younger, I like fell in love. And I like, like everything in my whole being just spilled it, gave it. And the Lord took me there and he said, you loved, when you were young, he said, you loved without restraint. And I was like, yeah. I did, because I, I, I was like, I don't know that I've ever, like, let something out. That, I was that vulnerable before. And he said, and then from that, you learned pain. And, and it was a long story with a lot of other things and seeing divorce and seeing all this brokenness. And he said, and in the midst of the pain, he said, you learned wisdom. And he said, and what that meant is you, you begin processing. And I did. I began to process, like, what causes broken contracts and relationships? What causes people to act out of dysfunction, act out of fear, act out of pride? What, what did I do this? I started looking at dysfunction. I started, pour, I started going to things like this journey to wholeness, like stuff like this and learning new language and how do I process my life, right? And I learned. I learned wisdom. I learned to look at all these things and get into my mind and understand this is what it means to be healthy. This is unhealthy. So I had no grid for that when I was a kid. You don't think about that stuff, right? You're like, oh my gosh, he's so hot. I love you. Right? 
Like, like there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a beauty to this, but there's an immaturity to this. Then you come to this place and you mature. You learn wisdom. You begin to process the world, right? And you, because you're aware of the pain. But this is what the Lord spoke to me. He said, Jordan, said, you need a revelation of my love. He said, because I'm fully aware of all the pain that's going to be caused to my heart because of human brokenness. He said, and I love without restraint. And it just, it, it marked me when he said that. And I, I realized, yeah, I'm lacking. I'm lacking a revelation. I'm lacking what that looks like. To love in such a way that I can completely abandon myself in love with the full knowledge of knowing that it's going to hurt. I mean, it's going to cost me suffering. And, and that, you know, begin, I wouldn't say that begin a process, but I've just been thinking about that we're all on this journey of maturing into childlikeness, right? It's a greater love to be able to love unrestrained when you know you're going to be hurt than just to love unrestrained because you don't know anything better, right? You could say the same thing with like purity. It, you can walk, a little kid could walk next to a prostitute and look at her with these pure eyes and see beauty, Right? Then you learn, like, that's defiled, that's perverted, that's lustful, that's, right? And you learn, and you have to, like, distance yourself. But the purity of God is in the midst of the full knowledge of knowing what's happening. You can look with eyes undefiled and see beauty. Are you following me? There's, like, this maturity into childlikeness. That it's like you start naive, and then you, like, grow up, but then you, like... <laughs> <laughs> go back to naive, but it's more powerful, right? Like, there's something about, like, Karl Barth, he's one of the most gifted theologians in the history of the church. He wrote, like, these long theological statements, and just, like, he's a beautiful, gifted man of God. And uh, they asked him towards the end of his life, what does the Bible say? He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That means more coming from him. Are you following me? It's like, it's simple. The gospel's simple. It's complicated, but it's simple. And I think we get into the complication, but then we got to go back into simplicity. So where am I, I going with this? Um, it, this summer will mark about 10 years uh, since uh, I entered into a full-out love affair with Jesus Christ. And I use the word love affair because relationship doesn't sound quite enough to qualify uh, what he did, how he captured me. And I've been reflecting a lot that it's like, man, I can't believe it's been a decade. Where did the time go? And then at the same time, sometimes it feels like it's about 80 years because uh, of all the brokenness. Um, but I got saved. Like my real self, I, I mean, I, I met Jesus Christ as a little boy. But I would say that my salvation experience, um, it came when I was 17. And I've, I've probably hint, shared this in certain ways before, but um, I was I, I was really like living for myself unawares. Like I was going to church. I thought I was a good kid. I really didn't do bad things. But I had this encounter with the Lord and I wasn't really in a culture that talked about encounters either. It just like happened to me. And it was like the fear of God came and I saw. Uh, and I saw the path that I was walking on, which looked really good. It had all my athletic success and my academic achievements. And it was just kind of everything was lined up. And I saw it and I saw it and all it was was self. All I could see was self. All I could see was selfishness. And I, I, I can still get emotional because it was the ugliest thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. And I literally started screaming when I saw it. Don't let me go down that path. 
don't let me go. I, I was screaming, like, like a desperate scream. And I, all that could come out of my mouth was, I surrender. I surrender. I, will, I give you everything. Don't let me go down that path. And literally, as I'm doing this, my mind was like trying to catch up, being like, what is happening to you right now? Like, literally, and I was like, what are you praying? What are you saying? Because I wouldn't have admitted this for years because I wasn't willing to surrender, but I knew that path was my athletic dreams, my ambition, everything. I, I knew that that was where it was, and I, it took a long time to, I didn't really like, here, Lord, you can have it. It was more like, I'm taking it from you. That's another story for another day. But the point was, is it put the fear of God in me. And I, I knew I needed something more. There had to be something more than this road that was marked by me. And, and that, that was what, that was what turned, my, turned me to the Lord. And now, through the last like decade almost, there's been a reoccurring thought that I can look back and I can remember uh, that at times. I, I, it's never left. It's kind of always been a present thought. And it's always been uh, this, is, is my life marked by love? And it's been a very troubling thought to me. It's been something that's like, not shameful, it's been like a disturbance of the Lord. And I, I can remember nights, specific nights, wrestling with this question, is my life marked by love? And it's only really intensifying in, in these days. Uh, and I feel like the Lord's been increasing this very disturbance, and it's the same question as, Jordan, is your life marked by love? And you say, but you're a pastor. Of course it is. Everything you do is love, right? And honestly, like, no. Honestly, the longer that I operate in the role of a pastor and a leader of a church and a movement, uh, that really doesn't mean that much in regards to the answer of that question. Because you can feed your own ego and you get success and things grow and everybody's excited and people get blessed. You know, and, 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 and honestly, being in the public role, it's only intensified the disturbance of that question. Is my life marked by love? Which is basically another way of saying, is it about me or is it about selfless love? And it disturbs me. I mean, it's really been disturbing me lately. Because to confess to you honestly, uh, I, can, I can look back and I have like a few experiences where I can honest to God tell you that my life was used to manifest selfless love. Like I've touched this consciousness of selflessness a couple times, a few times, and I remember them. And they're like these sacred treasures to me when I, I wouldn't say that I possessed it, but I'd say like selfless love possessed me. And, I, and, and something took over me that was bigger than myself. But to say that, that I express that every day is not true. And that's why it disturbs me. Is my life marked by love or is it marked by self? And I so, like, I guess the disturbance and what I'm sensing even now in these days is I want to be marked by selfless love. Like, I want, that's what my life is made to be about. We were made from love for love. And the reason it disturbs is because it gets into a deep layer in all of us that we're not made to walk down that road of self. We're made to walk down and live and, and express a life of love.
I went to, uh, you know, most of you know that I went, I went to Africa and, and served with Heidi and Roland Baker. Um, it was 2013 is when I was there. And uh, I don't know that I've ever really told many people this. I don't know if I've ever told anybody this or expressed it in this way. But uh, the months leading up to my departure there, I was extremely intimidated. I was actually very scared. And the reason why was because I, had, uh, I hadn't ever seen Heidi in person, but I'd known enough about her life to know that the way that she loved intimidated me. Um, I knew that she had spent many, much time in a trash dump and started a church there, and that was her favorite place on earth. And that scared me because I knew that my life, I didn't... I didn't have the love. I wouldn't, that's the last thing I'd ever want to do, if I'm just being honest. And part of why I knew I needed to go there is because myself needed to collide with a force that was greater than it. And I needed vision for something more. And honestly, I remember I, I wrestled, I struggled a lot, really feeling intimidated, like, I don't know who's going to come back from Africa type thing. And... Uh, it, it, was a, it was a big part of the journey for me, but it's obviously one I'm still on. But I, I want to read a story uh, that, of Heidi's that I think will kind of disturb you like I got disturbed. And I'm probably not going to be able to read it without crying. So just uh, bear with me because it's, you'll see what I'm saying. So this is Heidi. She, uh, before they were in Africa, they did, uh, their, their PhDs were in London. And so they would do homeless ministry amongst the, the poor on the streets. And this is a story. So when we lived in London, we spent a lot of time on the streets ministering to the homeless. During this time, I met a dying alcoholic named Patrick. Nearly every day for two years, I would tell him that I loved him and that Jesus loved him. And nearly every day, he would get really close to my face, look straight into my eyes, and tell me to go to hell. I kept bringing him food and telling him that I loved him. And I kept crying out to Jesus to teach me how to communicate his love to this man. One of my constant prayers is for the Lord to teach me to love. I don't want any other thing but to live inside the heart of Jesus and to manifest his love to a dying world. Nearly every day for two years, I would visit Patrick and tell him about love. Often he would spit at me. Sometimes he would take my food and sometimes he would throw it away. One day as I was out on the streets again, a woman I was ministering to began to beat me. She was a very angry and broken person. She'd been raped 16 times and spent a year in the hospital with a broken pelvis. She was a lesbian and dressed like a man. I often told her that I loved her and that Jesus loved her. As I held her, fed her, and ministered to her. One day she was stoned and very drunk. She was beating me and pushing me. But all I could feel was overwhelming love for her. When I looked at her, she was beautiful. Jean had a broken bottle and said she was going to rip open my face and throw me in the river. I told her how amazingly beautiful she was. I knew that she too was called to adoption and was predestined to be a daughter of God. 
As she told me she was going to kill me, all I could see in her was beauty. I told her I loved her. After some time, I began to feel very tired and thought I would either faint or die. I told God that whatever happened, I wanted his love to be known in that place. Patrick was watching all this happen, and eventually he said he was calling the police. I told him not to because I didn't want Jean to go to jail again. Then that man who for two years had told me to go to hell came and rescued me from her. For two whole years, I'd loved him, but he couldn't see, understand, or feel that love because there was too much pain in his heart. Patrick grabbed me away from Jean, started sobbing on that street, and said, for years you told me Jesus loved me. Now I've seen it, and I want him. We just held each other as he fell apart. He held me, and I held him in his dirty clothes and his scabies, lice, and alcoholic state. I just held him. He met Jesus that day because he saw love. I believe we've complicated the gospel. Jesus wants to reduce us to the simplicity of love. A week after Jean tried to kill me, she came to my house with a dozen roses and said, I'm sorry I tried to kill you. I want Jesus. <laughs> what a wonderful day. She got free from all her anger and pain. And that day she came home to the father's house. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own, it's not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I get emotional when I read that because that's what I so want. And if I'm honest, I don't know that love like she knows that love. I... I I recognize my poverty in spirit. I recognize that there's a deep hunger in me to live in that place where I can give myself so wholly to someone, even someone so ugly and broken as Patrick or Jean. And I'm aware that we live in a culture that, you know, like... Shane Claiborne says that the greatest problem with the Western church isn't that they don't care for the poor, it's that they don't know the poor. And I'm just like, Lord, that's me. My life's busy building a church, and I can get so busy doing all the things that's like, God, I don't want to miss my calling. I don't want to miss my calling to love. And we talk in this culture a lot, you know, we talk about, we want more of you, God. We want to be filled with your spirit. We want to be baptized in your spirit. And I think one of the, the primary mark of a life that's baptized in the spirit is you're compelled with a radical love. There's a man named Reese Howells who, uh, he has a book called Reese Howells, The Intercessor. If you want to get your world rocked, go buy it and read it. 
but he was 26 years old. And the Holy Spirit came to him and said, I want to come and possess you. He said, but I come in as God. And that means yourself has to go. He said, do you want this? He said, for five days he wrestled as the Lord would magnify the places of his self. And he said, the Lord wasn't dealing with sin in me. He said, the Lord was dealing with myself. He said, with a deep place within me that was touched by the fall. And he said, I wrestled. He said, he wrestled for five days. He said, I just didn't know if I could do it because the cost was so great. He knew how uncomfortable it was going to make him. He knew it was going to mean his whole life was given without restraint, even knowing that there would be suffering because of it. And literally with like two minutes left, he waited till the last minute because God said, by this time on this day. And he said, okay. And he said, within an hour, he said, God had come and flooded him. And the first thing he did, his first assignment, once he got filled with this power, God started moving through his preaching. God started, his, his like Bible studies were like on fire. But his first assignment was a man, uh, I think his name was, I forget, Willie or something. He was the town alcoholic. And he said, I would have never associated with that man. He said, but I had such love that I couldn't leave him alone. He said, I'd walk with him, and all I could do was pray with him. He said, I'd get looks from people because I would just spend all my time with this man because he was so consumed with love. And the disturbance in my life, like what I'm feeling is because in some ways, yeah, I'm a pastor, but I'm just the same as you, that I have a job and we do things, you know, and there's admin and this and that and that and that, and I'm in school, and, you know, it's like all this stuff, and I'm like, God... In trying to reach everyone, am I using that as an excuse to not love the one that you're putting in front of me? Because I don't know if there's anywhere that I love like that. And it's disturbing me. I'm just being really honest with you all, and I'm snotty again, so give me a second. I don't like preaching like this. But I'm going into the holy drama mode. <laughs> the paradigm shift I'm trying to make tonight is, you know, I don't know how many people in the room. Maybe right now there's 120 of you. I don't know. Maybe not. But what if each one of us loved someone the way Heidi loved Patrick? for the next three months, you know? Like what if each one of us were just faithful to love? I, I can't change everyone and I can get overwhelmed when you start looking at all the brokenness, all the systems that are broken, all the people that are stuck in these generational cycles and all the stuff, like all the stuff that's overwhelming. And I get so overwhelmed that's like, well, I don't know what to do, Lord. It's like God's like, and he's given me one person already, and I'm not going to say his name. I'll call him Joe for the sake of to keep it anonymous. But God's like, but love Joe. Like love Joe without restraint. Love Joe with everything you have. Like with humility of mind, prefer others more important than yourselves. That's so radical. That's so counter-American. 
but this disturbance, I can't get it out of me. You know, I was literally, I had all this stuff to do, and I was just like, God, I just, I just like need to go like sit on the street and find some, somebody, you know, not just to have like a project, but a friend with a name that's broken, you know, a dying person that's in need of love. Like Roland says it so well that if what we have is of value, isn't it like logical and morally obligatory that we have to give it away? If we really believe that Jesus Christ lives inside of us, it's like I'm, I just can't bear it anymore. Like I have to give that away, you know? And I believe that God, we say, you know, we want to see heaven invade earth. We want to see Boise look like heaven. And I believe that there's a lot of structures that need to change. But we'll never change the structures if we don't love Joe. And that's all of us. That's the church. I think the moment that this paradigm shifts becomes our life because this means we're willing to be disturbed. If I'm really going to love in that way, it's inconvenient. It means I might have to share my money. It means I might have to sh sacrifice my schedule. It means that my days might get wrecked sometime. But if I have that kind of love, which is him, it doesn't matter anymore. You know, because that's joy. That's the kingdom. And I think the moment that we embrace that paradigm shift and we just let our lives become completely consecrated to love, we become the church. I, I don't want to become this attraction where we just come and feed, you know, more Lord, just feed me Lord, feed me Lord. I want this to be like God, move upon us in power for the sake of Joe, for the sake of Patrick, for the sake of Gene, for the sake of the faces, the people I know out there, you know, that are dying. When we make that shift, this becomes something that's more powerful than this world knows what to do with. Right? We say we want to be a healthy family. That's a healthy family, compelled by love. You know, so why do we do Journey of Wholeness classes? Why do we pray? So that we can get into contact with love and become possessed by it and then express it to the one. I'm just calling us to like love one with everything that you have. See what happens. I don't even know where I'm at on my notes anymore, so I don't know why I'm looking at it. I think there's two mistakes that we can make, and I've, I've made the second one. I'm going to start with the first one. I think the first one is that we can hear this sermon and that we can go out and just start, like, trying really hard to love people. I can love. Like, I have a certain measure of love, but my love is volatile, it is inconsistent, and it runs out. It is very limited. And I've seen, I've seen tr what me trying to insert my love into situation, it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't do the trick. You know, but when I read a story, I cry when I read this story of Heidi, because no human being's capable of that love. That is the love of God. And His love is limitless, it's powerful, it's boundless, and it's compelling. It's a force of nature that nothing can withstand. It never fails. So I think the mistake, the first mistake we can do is we can try to go do it on our 
our own striving. And that's not going to get us anywhere. But I think the second mistake, and I've seen this in my life, is I can just stay in this place of God. Just, I just need you to possess me. Just possess me with love and then I'll go. Like just consume me with love and then I'll go. And I think it's an extreme on either side. And I think the reality is we go into his heart and we seek him and we say, fill me. And then we go and we exercise it. And then we get in that exercise and we get to that we confront eventually in this rhythm. We start confronting our limitations. We start spending ourselves to the place that we don't have anymore. And I think that it's where we end is when we enter into the beginning of God. When our strength fails, we begin to enter into the surplus of him. There's something about as we spend ourselves that capacity is created to be filled in place with the divine presence. So I don't think it's like, hey, just give me this one big time microwave experience where the popcorn in me just pops open and I have love and then I go start giving everybody popcorn. That's not how it works. It's like, it's like this in to his heart and then an out and I'm giving everything. And then an in to his heart and then an out. And I think in that rhythm is when there's something starts stirring inside and capacity and potential and expectation starts growing and it starts, we start becoming this habitation of God in and out, in and out, and I'm spending myself. Because Heidi, it sounds so great. I was literally with her in Africa, and she one day, she said, I need prayer because I'm really discouraged. I'm really discouraged, and I don't feel like going today. Because she continues to spend herself, and then that's what she continues to come. We want to stay hungry and poor and those who weep, and those who mourn, and those that are meek, because those are get the kingdom.